Legendary French chef Auguste Escoffier knew that to be a good cook, you had to master the basics. His great-grandson Michelle told me how actress Sarah Bernhardt credited the chef's scrambled eggs for her longevity. She apparently replied laughing, oh, maybe the fact that every morning at breakfast I have a glass of champagne with Mr. Escoffier's scrambled eggs. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts helps aspiring chefs perfect their scrambled eggs and so much more. Head to escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Hey guys, Bridget here. Now before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. Now, on to the show. Some foods can be controversial. Add sugar to a Southerner's cornbread or beans to a Texan's bowl of chili and you're going to get an earful. But then there are the foods that seem impervious to controversy. They're universally loved, or at the very least, they're tolerated by everyone. Like ketchup. It's pretty much a given that ketchup goes hand-in-hand with french fries. And of course, ketchup just has to go on the classic burger. Right? Well, that's what I thought. Until I heard of a place, a place very famous to food historians, that never has and never will put ketchup on a burger. So today we go to the Ketchup Burger Battleground Zero. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Okay, I have to start this with talking about how much I love ketchup. You could actually say that I'm addicted to ketchup. I literally carry ketchup around in my purse. Most foods I eat, I consider them vehicles for ketchup. So that would include eggs, sandwiches, obviously burgers and fries. One time I tried it in a moment of desperation, ketchup on cottage cheese, which was disgusting. I don't recommend that. I Googled it after. It turns out that that was Richard Nixon's favorite snack. But... Anyway, all of this is bad ketchup behavior, but I I can't help it. I'm addicted to ketchup. This is reporter and ketchup extremist, Alex De Palma. And she came to us with a very interesting story about anti-ketchup extremism. Yeah, it's, it's definitely weird considering how extreme I am about ketchup, but... Indulge me for a minute here because I'm going to play psychologist. I do love ketchup, but it's possible that the real reason for my interest in ketchup is that I grew up in a town with a ketchup resistance cell. Oh, I love it. I love it. You always want what you can't have. Exactly. So go on. When outsiders think of New Haven, they usually think of Yale University. Outsiders also, I've noticed this recently, say New Haven instead of New Haven. That's a different story. But those of us from there know that the real New Haven institution isn't Yale. It's Louis Lunch. 
So Louis Lunch is spelled L-O-U-I-S, like Louis, but it's pronounced Louise, sometimes Luz. I probably will use those interchangeably. And Luz is well known for a couple of different reasons. The main one being that according to the Library of Congress and Louis' owners, they are the birthplace of the American hamburger. That is no small claim. No, it's not. And that's probably why the status of the birthplace of the American hamburger is what gives them this authority for number two, which is their ketchup policy. And that policy is no ketchup allowed ever. Huh. Okay, let's mull on that for just a second. The birthplace of the American burger has a hard line stance against America's most beloved burger condiment, ketchup. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of an identity for them. It's definitely a whole thing. When you walk into Louis, there used to be a sign, and I specifically remember this because there was a swear word in it. And when I was young, I was like, I couldn't believe there was a swear. But the sign said, this is not Burger King. You do not get it your way. You take it my way or you don't get the damned thing. And they have taken that sign down, but the no ketchup ever rule is still very, very much in effect. Lou's actually sells merch and one of their most popular t-shirts features this huge ketchup bottle and it has this like you know those no symbols it's basically like a circle with a big line through it it's the ketchup bottle with a big line through it and that's their most popular design in addition to that behind the counter at louis they have this ketchup bottle and it's filled with red yarn and whenever somebody orders a burger with ketchup the person working behind the counter will squirt that at them and it sounds weird, but it actually really looks and feels pretty real when you're the one being squirted. I've witnessed this happen. I, of course, have never myself ordered ketchup on a burger at Louis, but it definitely is an item that is memorable there. <laughs> fear absolutely works. I would never order ketchup there just for fear of being squirted with red yarn. On another level here, this is something huge because you're not saying or at least Louis is not saying, that someone can just order a burger without ketchup. They're actually asserting that ketchup on a burger is a bad thing. And if that assertion's correct, well, that's huge, because I'm going to have to question everything else that I've ever thought to be true. Yeah, I know. I, I understand. I'm with you. And there's something, I guess, to be said that Louis clearly knows where they are, and that's, I guess, on the unpopular side of ketchup, uh, in terms of society, but they're embracing it. So are they right? And the big question is, do burgers need ketchup? Okay, Alex, as a longtime patron and a New Haven insider, I think I said that right. New Haven. You're the perfect person to infiltrate Louis and get to the bottom of this whole burger ketchup conundrum once and for all. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely feel like I'm in a complicated position here. I'm really straddling the ketchup line because on the one hand, as I mentioned <laughs> extensively, I'm a certified ketchup addict. But no matter how much I love ketchup, I really would never dream of putting it on a loose burger, even if I had the option. I genuinely don't think that there could be an improvement upon a Louis burger. I am a true believer but I do accept your mission, and I will head over there to get some answers. First of all, it's much enlarged from the original site. But I, let's talk about the outside first, because the outside is just this you know, cute little brick building. 
and all the windows are are round on the top and the door is round on the top and they have these shutters that they close every night and they put these huge old locks on these padlocks are god these padlocks are probably from early in the 20th century that is my dad donald he's been bringing me to lose for my entire life the first burger i ever remember eating was a lose burger I have memories of coming to Lou's with my dad when I was a little kid to deliver Christmas cookies to his friends, Ken and Jeff. We'd always get burgers and sit at the booth where we could watch them cook. And as I got older, I always remember being embarrassed to see the Christmas card photo of me and my sister hanging on a string that went across the restaurant. The counter is wood. There's wood everywhere. The walls are wood, the ceiling's wood, everything's wood. And there's carvings everywhere of people's initials from you know from forever and in fact the counter is a second layer counter they 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 covered the old counter because people were really getting i can only say disrespectful of the of the carvings these were you know old old carvings of people's initials and they were like just carving big stupid things into the counter so ken covered it over The Lou's connection runs really deep in my family. My dad, Donald, used to work there in the 70s. His friend Cam asked him to fill in for a couple of weeks while he was on vacation, and my dad agreed to cover for him. Then Cam never came back for seven months. Well, I used to go to Louis' lunch a lot, and I had a friend named Cam, Cam Henning. And Cam Henning worked at Louis' lunch, and so one day, Cam said to me, so would you cover for me for two weeks? And I thought about it, and it sounded like fun. I liked all the people that lose, and, and I did it for a couple of weeks, and then Cam didn't come back. And, and I did it for a while longer, and I kept thinking, like, when is Cam coming back? And nobody knew when he was going to come back, because he's kind of unpredictable. And he didn't come back for months. I mean, he didn't come back maybe for seven months. Did you try call, like? Did you try and get in touch with him? No, you couldn't get in touch with people then. This was 1979. We didn't have cell phones. I didn't know where they were. Cam did eventually make it back. Late 1970s communication difficulties notwithstanding. Which is lucky for me because he's sort of the unofficial biographer of Lou's Lunch. Here's Cam. For the first five years when they were in the lunch wagon the hamburgers were presented on a plate with the hamburger and toast on the side no sandwiches and one day the story goes that a customer came in and said Lou I gotta get I gotta I'm in a rush can you the the original Lewis Lassen I'm in a rush and can you put it between the toasts so he did and so Though founded in 1895, the first hamburger sandwich was made in 1900. Lou's started in 1895 as a lunch wagon. It's one of the oldest family-run businesses in America, currently owned and operated by Jeff Lassen, Lou's great-great-grandson and the fourth generation of Lassen to run the place. My name's Jeff Lassen, and I'm the fourth generation proprietor of Louie's Lunch. My great-grandfather, Louis Lassen, started it in 1895, and in the year 1900, he made the first hamburger sandwich in the United States. Even though the restaurant is over 120 years old, not much has changed. Today, they make and cook their burgers the exact same way they did during World War I. 
a proprietary blend of five cuts of beef, ground fresh daily, and cooked in the very same upright cast iron grills that they had in the original store. They're cooked in the same stoves, vertical gas broilers that are dated from 1898, so they're 120 years old. They're upright, so we cook vertically as opposed to on a flat top like that. There's a flame on either side and they're cast iron and they look like antique stoves. I can't, looking at them, you would never think that they work. It's amazing, but back uh, back then in the 1900s, if you made something, you made it to last, because if you didn't, you were out of business. Even the toaster is from 1929. Really? Yes, 89 years old. Yeah, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. How in the world could this place have ever survived for over 120 years without allowing ketchup? That's a very good question, and I would be lying if I said that this did not anger some people along the way. If you Google Louis Lunch or if you do a quick search through Yelp, you will surely find a few scathing reviews. Here's my favorite Yelp review from one ketchup-loving customer. The biggest problem I have with Lou's is their ban on ketchup. Don't, this is all in caps, don't tell me what I can and cannot put on my hamburger. Back to lowercase. If I want ketchup on my burger, I'm going to put ketchup on it. I ordered takeout, so when I got back to work, I put ketchup on it anyway. That's the review. But let me be clear about this. For every one person who gets upset at Lou's for not serving ketchup, there are so many more who are lifelong Louis customers and who would never, ever dream of putting ketchup on a precious Louis burger. So, Bridget, for the argument in favor of the ketchupless burger, I would like to submit Exhibit A. No, my father would never sell it. He'd just let it go out of business. We've been approached twice, once by my my father first, by a company that shall remain anonymous, and uh, they offered him uh, $5 million uh, around 1975. Quicker than you could blink, he turned him down. Really? Was that a conversation? Like, did your did your whole family have that, like, discussion? Or was it just like, that's not... Like, no. It was, my dad was like, no. No, thank you. I'm not interested. Thanks anyhow. And then about 15 years ago, maybe a little more, I was offered uh, $51 million to... Uh, Wait, really? $51? And you just, in a bl- you didn't even consider it? Not, not as quick as my dad. <laughs> Truth be told, unfortunately, but... Probably took me about five minutes, maybe a little less, and uh, I said no. Because? Everything that my forefathers put into this and myself and uh, the hours and the time and the tears and everything my father did to try and save it back in the day, and uh, I couldn't see myself doing that. Wow, so what you're saying is that a ketchupless burger is a $51 million idea? Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is they might be onto something here, which brings me to Exhibit B. And actually, I think it's better if I let Cam and Jeff talk about Exhibit B. Can I tell the story as I remember? Sure. They used to be in a building. It was an office of an old tannery complex. We moved into this building in 1917. And then when they actually picked it up and moved it up here in 1975. Okay, so what happened was this. In the late 60s, early 70s, New Haven's mayor at the time, a guy named Richard Lee, and the city government were pushing hard for new developments. They had these visions of turning New Haven into one of the East Coast's model cities, whatever that means. 
They needed to make space for all of these new development projects, and one of the spaces they wanted was the land that the original Lou's lunch was sitting on. So the mayor and the city government tried to bully Jeff's dad, Ken Lassen, into shutting down or moving. But Ken was the third-generation owner of Lou's, and he was also the type of guy who doesn't step down from a fight. Cam loves telling this story. I mean, it's a real tale of urban corruption. So every time they'd come up with some sort of phony thing of why it would be moved, uh, Ken would come up with documentation and just kept disproving them all the time. I mean, he was a real pain in the ass for them. This battle between Ken Lassen and the New Haven city government went on for almost 10 years. During that decade, the community rallied around Lou's. The showdown was in the newspaper all the time, and devoted customers staged a write-in to Washington, D.C. to save Lou's. They even had the support of the military at one point. So all of a sudden, all this publicity was coming out all over the place. Uh, I was told there was a, a, a bunch of Marines who wanted to chain themselves around the building. I had heard that. He almost fought him for almost 10 years, my father. Okay. Uh, well, Louis' history has me at least rethinking my assertions. Because when a town rallies around a place that makes ketchupless burgers, well, maybe there's something really special in that burger because it's not like they survived without ketchup. Louis has thrived and they galvanized an entire community. So, Alex, I want to ask you did you ever find out why, though? Why they don't allow ketchup? Is the original Louis. Is there some sort of complicated personal relationship with ketchup? Have they been hurt by ketchup? So why have they taken the hard line? That's a really good question. And I think the best way to put it is that ketchup just doesn't belong there. Because of the way we started and how we started and why we started. And we never started with ketchup. And we give you such a good cut of meat. And we don't think it needs it. And you should be tasting the meat as opposed to covering it up, whether it be ketchup or anything else for that matter, which is a reason why we don't have it. Well, I have to admit, I'm not fully convinced yet because Alex is basically part of Louis' extended family. Does that make her a double agent? Has our ketchup case been compromised? After the break, Alex goes into pro-ketchup territory and consults a ketchup expert to get the other side. It's time for this week's Bob's Red Mill Quiz, where I test one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues on their grain knowledge. And this week, it is the fabulous El Simone. Now, Elle's a food stylist. She's a test cook on our TV show, but is she a flaxseed expert? We're going to find out. Hello. Hey, Elle. Hey, Bridget. How are you? Good. Ready to quiz you on flaxseed. Okay, I'm ready. Bring it on. <laughs> okay, true or false? In the 8th century, King Charlemagne believed so strongly in the nutritional benefits of flaxseed that his subjects were required to eat it by law. Wow. I can't imagine being required to eat flaxseed. But, I mean, this sounds so crazy. It must be true. I'm going to go with truth. <laughs> yeah, your instinct is right. So you nailed it. 
Flax was cultivated in Babylon as early as 3000 BC, and King Charlemagne was a pretty big fan by the time he came along. You can't blame him because golden flaxseed is high in essential fatty acids. It also contains iron, protein, and fiber. Learn more at bobsredmill.com and use the offer code ATK at checkout to get 25% off your next purchase. You know when you're cooking something like chicken or fish and you need to wash your hands, but you don't want to touch the faucet because then you got to clean the faucet? Kohler has thought of this. Their faucets have something called response touchless technology. You simply wave your hand or a utensil through the sensor window to turn it on and off like magic. It's really convenient and hygienic because it reduces the chances of spreading germs around the kitchen. You and your family are going to be nice and safe. The touchless sensor is on the underside of the spout and turns on and off in 20 milliseconds. Perfect if you don't have a second to spare. And if you forget to turn it off, the faucet's going to shut itself off after four minutes. No batteries are necessary. It connects to your AC power. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners, here's a tip from me to you to make holiday cooking a little bit easier. Try out Juul, the sous vide machine that can help you cook everything from big roasts to big breakfasts. The Juul is smart. It even holds food at the right temp until you're ready for it. And it's hands-free, so while Juul is working, you get to hang out with your guests. Juul, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Juul and use code ATK2018 to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Before the break, New Haven insider Alex De Palma took us inside Louis' lunch, the birthplace of the American burger and a notorious ketchup resistant cell. And they're sticking to their guns. The no ketchup way is the right way. Yeah, they're definitely sticking to their guns. And while I, of course, drink the Louis Kool Aid, I knew that my search couldn't end here. After all, I'm a journalist, and my mission needs to be the truth, so I decided to consult a ketchup expert and enthusiast, who, Bridget, you know, because she happens to be one of your America's Test Kitchen colleagues. All right, Somerville. Hello. Hello, everybody. It's so great to see you all here. I know. This is great. Everyone came out. We came all the way from Brookline Village um, Mm -hmm. to be here tonight. We did. And why, why did we come here? Burgers. Burgers. That's why you're all here, too. Right. We are on a quest to find the perfect burger. Molly Birnbaum is a burger and ketchup expert. She's written two books on the science of cooking, and she wrote and performed a live show with her colleague Dan Souza, who you hear on the tape, about what makes the most scientifically perfect burger. And so what we're wondering is, is the perfect burger, does it exist? Can we find it? Can we buy it? Can we make it? Do we even agree on what it is? Probably not. So Molly, what's your perfect burger? I personally like a nice, thick pub burger. The best bun for a burger is a potato roll because they're nice and soft and squishy. American cheese melts really well. 
which is great. And lettuce is important for the crunch and the sound and the textural difference. And then ketchup is important because it is delicious. And I also believe that burgers are simply a vehicle for ketchup. Wait, that's what I said. Burgers are a vehicle for ketchup. So ketchup is the perfect food, and here's why. It has all five of the taste sensations, salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami. It is made with tomatoes, which are a little bit sweet, and also have umami, which is, you know, savory or delicious. It has vinegar, which is acidic. It has a little bit of salt, of course. The tomatoes have a little bit of bitterness, and it has sugar, so it is sweet. So ketchup, when done right, which is Heinz, is the perfect food because it is the perfect balance of all five of these taste sensations. Molly is a ketchup enthusiast, to say the least. She's also done a fair bit of research about its origins. So ketchup has been around in some form or another for a really long time. It's been reported that the British discovered its precursor in Southeast Asia around the 1700s at some point. This ketchup precursor was a deep red fermented sauce made from fish, and it actually didn't have any tomatoes in it at all. And the British brought it back home and tried to recreate it, and they used things like anchovies and walnuts to create their own kind of fermenty sauce. It's crazy. It's not anything like the ketchup we have today, but they put it, you know, in soups, on stews. I've even read that they put it on apple pie. And then eventually it moved over to America, and it slowly gained popularity. But it didn't quite resemble the ketchup we're used to. It didn't have this five-sensation punch until Henry Hines got his hands on it in the late 19th century. When ketchup was starting to become popular in America and people wanted to preserve it and bottle it and sell it, what they were doing was adding a chemical preservative called sodium benzoate to it. And so they were using unripe green tomatoes and sodium benzoate. But eventually, sodium benzoate was deemed unsafe to eat, so it had to change. And that's where Henry Hines came in in the late 19th century. So he was in Pittsburgh, and he started making ketchup using ripe tomatoes. And he used an acid, uh, vinegar, rather than sodium benzoate, as a preservative. So in the process of changing the formula, Henry Hines is the man who made ketchup as we know it today. The ripe tomatoes provided the umami that was lacking, the vinegar provided acidity, and he also added a lot of sugar to create, as Molly puts it, the perfect food. But I wonder if there's something more going on here. Beyond the precise, scientifically perfect balance of flavor, I think another element to ketchup that is really important, and to Heinz ketchup in particular, is memory and emotion and a sense of nostalgia. Because most of us grew up here in America, here in the Northeast, you know, in my age range at least, we grew up eating Heinz tomato ketchup in the upside-down squirt bottles. That means that it's an important taste from our collective childhood. I've read about this a little bit, and I think it's so right. I think that the act of putting ketchup on your food as a kid is one of the first times that you are given full control over some element of your food because you have the bottle at the table and your parents hand it to you and you can put as much as you want or as little as you want. You can put it wherever you want on the plate. 
So I think not only is it delicious, it is this childhood memory of delicious power, if you will. There's there's something really, you know, emotionally pulling about the taste of ketchup. Okay, so if ketchup is so perfect in this multifaceted way, I wondered if Molly would literally put it on anything. That's a good question. You know, I think I think there are places where ketchup is not as appropriate as it would be in other places. How about that for an answer? For example, I will totally throw my dad under the bus here. He requests ketchup even in very fancy restaurants when he orders a very fancy steak. I don't know about that. I mean, I appreciate his love of ketchup, but doesn't always feel like the right place in time for a special request for ketchup. But why? What's the difference? Well, it's not a burger. You know, burgers are created to be vehicles for ketchup. Fancy steaks are not created to be vehicles for ketchup. And therein lies the difference. So if the burger itself is as good as a fine steak, well, then we might just be able to reconcile the logic here. Yeah, those are my thoughts exactly. You can't put a cover on one of these things when it's empty without like, crushing it. I asked my dad to help me really understand what makes a Lou's burger different from all other burgers. Well, it starts off just that the, the meat is the highest quality you could possibly get that has the exact right amount of of different, you know, fats and different cuts of beef that they have blended. And then they cook them in those amazing vertical grills that, you know, they have flames on each side. And then as the hamburger cooks, any fat that comes out of the hamburger drips into the water so it doesn't stay on the grill and doesn't cook into the into the burger. And then they take it off and they put it on Pepperidge Farm toast. I mean, it's not, you know, they're not using some sugary you know, a horrible, you know, sunbeam bun. From the time that Lou started in 1895, they were completely focused on the quality of the meat. Here again is unofficial Lou's historian, Cam, talking about the original Lewis Lassen. He would go down to the meat house and select, I think it was a third of side of beef whole. He would purchase it whole and then bring it back and cut it down and then mince it down so that every burger was a specific proportion of the shoulder to the, all the parts of the meat. I mean, the art of blending it. And as he said, that's why he never put ketchup, because it, it, it masked the taste of the burger. Believe it or not, the original Lou's Burger had even fewer frills. That all changed when Ken, Jeff's dad, took over. They used to be just hamburgers with onion and tomato, and then cheese in the early 1950s, and he tried all these cheeses that to see if they worked, and none of them worked till he, I'm not sure we should say it, but it's, he found that cheese whiz worked perfectly. Okay, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I had a feeling you would say that, and the funny thing is that until I started working on this story, I had never even questioned that idea that cheese whiz would also potentially compromise the flavor of the burger. I was just so under the Louis spell. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. Right. I mean, we've been talking about how ketchup masks the flavor of a burger. Cheese whiz definitely has to do it as well. Well, burger expert Molly Birnbaum does agree with you. (laughs) 
That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's hard for me to believe that the absence of ketchup is anything more than a PR stunt if they are putting Cheese Whiz on their burgers because Cheese Whiz is a very strong flavor. I don't know. I mean, I think to their credit, I think it's a great PR stunt because look at us. We're talking about it on a podcast. So all of this got me thinking that the reason most of us love ketchup and why it's so ubiquitous and why it has so many supporters is that the secret ingredient to ketchup is actually nostalgia. And maybe the reason that Luz has gotten away with refusing to serve ketchup is because they offer a different version of that same secret ingredient. At Luz, longtime customers end up becoming family. This is something that I experienced through my years of going there with my dad. And Luz burgers become part of a family meal. And to me and to so many of the customers that go there, that's really what makes the place so unique, especially in, and it's kind of a reference back to that sign, this is not Burger King, in a time when there are so many places like Burger King or places where you can get it your own way or however you want with no personal connection, Louis is really a place that makes you feel like family. And what I found out through reporting this story is, is that Jeff sacrificed a baseball career and he had turned down scholarships to Arizona State, to Miami. He had like a real shot at playing pro baseball and he turned it down without hesitation in order to keep the family business alive. This came first and family came first and uh, here we are today. I needed to do what I needed to do. So no, a Louis burger does not need ketchup because it has something else. Do you come here a lot? As often as possible. Many years. How long have you been coming here? Probably um, since my, before my son was born, and he's 37. So what's your order? What's your go-to order that you always have? Cheese works. Okay, what is the che- what's on the cheese works? Cheese, tomato, onion, a burger, and some toast. Do you ever get sad that you don't have ketchup on the burger? No. Why? Because it tastes so good just the way it is. The way it is, it's perfect for me. That's reporter and ketchup double agent Alex De Palma. All this talk of choosing sides, of drawing lines in the sand, sacrifice, about a burger and ketchup, no less, well, it made me think of something else. And maybe I've been watching too much Ken Burns, but all I could think of was one of those wartime love letters that described the battlefront. January the 3rd, 1902, New Haven, Connecticut. My very dearest Beulah, the signs are now evident that the little cafe will open once again. I do not know what fortunes lay ahead of me, but as I feel that this may be my last chance to write to you, I need to tell you the truth of my circumstances. The cold and bitter winds of New Haven were only distant thoughts once I came inside the warm and modest cafe. Folks talked of news, family, and of a strange invention. A meat patty placed between two slices of bread. They called it a hamburger sandwich. Oh, but it appeared glorious, and what a perfect vessel for which to indulge my vice, my habitual consumption, which you know I keep upon my person. That ketchup, that flowing red devil, may just be my undoing. That is 
if I survive the day. Alas, the counterman rejected without consult my request to baste that seared patty with my beloved ketchup. I have returned now for the fifth day, my plea once again unrewarded. But know that we have fought the good fight, the honorable fight. Louis' lunch continues to abstain from our demands, but take comfort that we will continue to push for what is right, what is natural, and is surely endowed from above. Whether I am victorious today, or that success is left to my descendants many generations from now, I am confident that Louis' lunch will relent, and we will bring together the union of burger and ketchup. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer extraordinaire is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, and Jordan Pearson. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is the whiz of all cheese and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Escoffier. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hey, if you want to check out pictures from the famous Louis Lunch, well, we've posted them on our website, and that's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. This is the last episode of season one, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with more great food stories. In the meantime, if you like proof, well, be sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps other people find the show. Oh, and one more thing. Don't forget to fill out our survey. We've posted that link in the show description and it'll be up on the website. We'd love to hear from you.